0: Well, in First Samuel 13, God uh, looked at a man named Saul, the first king of Israel, and, uh, and, he, and he began to take away his kingdom. He rejected him as, as king because Saul disobeyed him, rebelled against him, went against uh, what God had clearly said. And so what's, uh, what God says to, to Saul through the prophet Samuel is this, uh, your kingdom uh, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Now, we know that uh, the, the replacement was a man named David. We've spent a lot of time talking about him, but what does it mean that, that David is said to have a heart after God's own heart? What, what is it about David that, that God looks at and points to and says, there's something about this man that reflects what I'm like? There's, what is it about David that that, that has a heart like, like God's? And I think that there are, are two sort of outstanding moments in David's life where through his words and through his actions, he puts the heart of God on display for us to see. The first one is in First Samuel 17. And there we see this shepherd boy going to visit his brothers on the front line of combat as the army of Israel is arrayed against the army of the Philistines. And there the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, comes out and says, Bring me your champion. And through one-on-one combat, we'll determine who the victor is this day. And, and, and there's this picture of imputation, where the, the, the defeat of the one soldier, his defeat would be imputed to the rest of his army. However, the victory of the, the winner, that victory would be imputed to his army. And David sees this little shepherd boy, and he, and he says to himself, somebody needs to stop this guy, right? So he, in boldness, he goes, and he stands between his people, And the enemy, he represents his people and he has victory over the enemy. It's this picture of boldness which puts on the display this this heart of God most fully realized through Jesus Christ. As this descendant of David would come and he would take on flesh and he would go to the cross to face our ultimate enemy, which is sin and death. And in boldness he goes at great cost to himself, lays down his life so that our enemy is destroyed. That's the boldness of God. And you see a glimpse of it on display in David. Now, we know that David was not 100% pure, right? He was not a righteous man. He was not holy. He was not perfect. We're going to see that, that he's going to fail. Remember, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, that there's this unsubmitted part of David's heart. There's this part that he's holding on to and protecting it from God having access to, and, and this unsubmitted part of his heart, he, it's going to lead to his destruction. Now, Jesus was the man that David was, not holy, righteous, perfect, put on display the heart of God at all times. J- Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Right? He was the, re- the exact representation of, of the heart of God lived out, Jesus the Son of God. Now, The second uh, thing that we see about David that puts on display the heart of God is in the passage that we're looking at this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 9. In the first one, we saw the boldness of the heart of God. The second one, we're going to see the tenderness of the heart of God. Second Samuel chapter 9, um, just to sort of uh, recap a little bit before we dive in, a couple weeks ago we were in Second Samuel chapter 7, at the beginning of that chapter David is sitting in his palace and he's dwelling in or sitting on what he is going to do for God, but by the end of that chapter God has told him what God's going to do for him and now David's sitting in and he's dwelling on the promises of God to him and it's from this place that we looked at last week, this place of of faith that he launches out with the power of God and with the giftedness God is giving him, and he accomplishes a couple of things. He subdues all the enemy armies around him, north, south, east, and west, and this blesses his people by providing them an atmosphere of rest. This enables the temple to be built. More than that, in conquering these people, he he secures a workforce to help build the temple, and he uh, secures a wealth that, that pays for the temple construction. All of this he does blesses other people. See, David's in this spot where he's blessed by God, and because he's blessed by God, he blesses other people, his people. Today, he's going to bless one individual. Read with me. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Bechur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and said, "'What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I?' Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, "'All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table.'" Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Uh, One of the things to appreciate about David is how he handled power and control. Now, unlike his predecessor, Saul, Saul would do anything to maintain power and control. He he would disobey disobey God in order to maintain power and control. Uh, He he was willing to to commit murder in order to maintain power and control. But but David is is different. Uh, David was chosen to be king long before he was able to become king. Um, when Saul was what was going to be replaced, it took at least ten years for for God to to decide to choose the moment to, to, to bring down Saul and to, to raise up David. And and in this time, there was opportunity that David could have reached out and taken control and power for himself. Times when Saul was vulnerable, times when, when David could have very easily killed him and taken control of the throne and taken power, taken his throne and become king. But David was not a man who held on to power so tightly. Instead, he held on to control and power with, with open hands. We're going to see this expressed even more later on. When one of David's sons tries to overthrow David, and he leads an army against David at Jerusalem, instead of of responding in kind, what David does is he retreats. He pulls out of Jerusalem. He leaves it to this son. And as he's leaving, he so much as says, if God has chosen to give the kingdom from me to him, then so be it. David didn't hold on to power and control with both hands. And what this enabled him to do was be freed to demonstrate hospitality, generosity, the loving kindness of God to other people, unlike his predecessor. Now, what we see in this chapter is David is, he's going to to bless somebody of, of Saul's household. Now, He's going to restore his name. He's going to restore his his wealth. He's going to restore uh, restore him and and even welcome him to his table. And what David is doing is he's running the risk of of being betrayed. Uh, This son of Saul could say, I have the hereditary right to this throne, and I'll take it. David is opening himself up to the possibility that Mephibosheth might try to destroy him in order to take the kingdom back but he runs that risk because that's what love does. So let's begin to dive in a little bit deeper here. Verse 1, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, David is at the top of his career as king right now. In this moment, David, uh, he, he, he's at the apex of his game. He's at the pinnacle uh, of, uh, of, of, his, of his life as a as, as king. He has... Um, he, he's uh, stopped the, the civil war that was going on. Uh, he has united all of Israel. He's conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital. He's He's got a palace. He's got a throne. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem at this point. He's begun to subdue the, all the armies around him. Like, David is at the top of his game. and And at the top of his game, he's not saying, okay, what do I need to do to control this and maintain this? What do I need to do in order to protect what I've got? What do I need to do to make sure nobody tries to come after my throne? Who do I need to kill? Right? Especially at the house of Paul. Saul was his enemy for a long time. He spent years running from him. And he's not saying, What do I need to do to protect the power that I've got? What do I need to do? Who do I need to kill? Instead, he says, Who do I need to bless? Who do I need to identify who needs the the loving kindness of God? Who among my my enemy's household needs to know the loving kindness of God? For Jonathan's sake. Uh, Jonathan was the son of Saul, and although Saul hated David and wanted to kill him, Jonathan uh, protected him more than once. Um, There were even times when Saul wanted to kill his own son because Jonathan wanted to protect David. And at one point, In 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan and and David have a conversation. And here's what, what, what Jonathan says to David. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him, as he loved his own soul. We've talked uh, a few weeks ago about the, the nature of their relationship. This was pure. This was based on the loving kindness of God. Uh, these two had a bond that some men know about, right? Some, some of us know the kind of bond that, that, that these two individuals had, and it was pure, and it was strong, and uh, Jonathan is here. He's making David promise, you'll take care of my house. You won't cut off my house. And so uh, Jonathan is long since dead at this point. David is at the the, the height of his game, the the, the height of his power, and he says, okay, who do I need to bless? Who do I need to show the the loving kindness of God to my enemy for the the sake of Jonathan, my friend? So in chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2, David is told about a guy named Ziba, um, and then he has uh, Zeba come. Verse 3, we pick it up, and the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Zeba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So, um, Zeba was a, a servant of Saul. When Saul dies, Zeba sort of takes control over his household and, and manages Saul's household. Um, he is prosperous. We you, you know that by the fact that he has 15 sons. He has 20 servants. He's doing quite well for himself. Now, uh, after ish the Saul's last son, dies, uh, there's no master of Saul's property in his house. It, would, it Technically, it would go to David. But David has no knowledge of, of Ziba, and so Ziba has become kind of wealthy, and, and this, this, this household is, because of, uh, of, of the vacancy of, uh, of its ownership, has now kind of fallen into his hands, okay? And so now he's under David's uh, eye, he kn- David knows he exists, he's brought to, uh, to David, and, David's, and he says to David, yeah, there is somebody that you could show the loving kindness of God to, but you may not want to. He may not be worth it. He's not going to reciprocate because he's disabled. Uh, in this culture, people looked at disabilities as a, as a consequence of sin. That they saw these as, 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 for some reason, if you were disabled in this culture, they looked at you as, as shameful. In fact, Mephibosheth's name means man of shame. He's saying, yeah, there's somebody that you could bless, but but he may not be worth your time. Uh, this was true in Jesus' day, too. Uh, there was a, a moment where Jesus came across a man who was born blind, and his disciples said to him, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Th- this has happened so that the glory of God could be put on display. See, this happened to Mephibosheth so the glory of God could be put on display. We, we read about Mephibosheth way back in chapter 4. You might remember this. We're introduced to him when Jonathan, his dad, dies in combat along with his grandfather. Uh, his nursemaid picks him up. He's only five years old. P- takes him up because the, in that culture, what would generally happen is if, if your, your, your dad was king and he got killed, you're probably going to be next. So, Um, the nursemaid picks him up. Uh, Either she trips and falls on him or somehow he falls, but both of his feet are broken. They never heal right and therefore he's never able to walk and he's disabled. In that culture, he would not be seen as as someone to take care of, but he would be seen in a shameful light. And so is saying, yeah, there's somebody you could take care of, but are you sure you want to? Um, the, The king's response is simply this. Where is he? Where is he? And, and Ziba said to the king, "He is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lo Debar." Now, um, Mekir is, uh, Mekir is was another servant of, of Saul's, but unlike Ziba, when Mephibosheth was in need of help, he took him in, and he's raised him. Uh, Makur is going to help out David uh, in, in a few chapters. We're going to see his generosity put on display again. He's a, he's a good guy, but um, he raises him in this place called Lodabar. Now, this name in, in Hebrew it literally means like no name. It means no name. It means like hole in the ground, right? So, so you put this together. Here's this man of shame who's a nobody from nowhere. And David says, where is he? Bring him to me. Verse six, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So Mephibosheth comes in. He doesn't stand before the king. He can't. He lays prostrate before the king, and he honors the king, but he's scared. We know he's scared because what are David's first words? Fear not. Don't be afraid. See, Mephibosheth at this point, he probably thinks he's a dead man. It was common in this culture that, that, that if you belong to the, to the, the failed house of, 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 a, of a ruler, that, that the, whoever succeeded you uh, or, or succeeded that house, would destroy every member of that ruler's family. Every single member. Uh, it was common, I mean, you look at uh, history, it's, it's replete with rulers who, in order to hold on to power and control, not only did they destroy every member of every other household that was, was competing against them, but they even destroyed members of their own household. People like Elizabeth I or uh, Herod the Great or Edward IV, like there's history is replete with people who are willing to kill in order to maintain power and control. And here David is, he's inviting the, the son of his enemy in, and not only is he not going to kill him, he's going to restore his name, he's going to restore his property, he's, he's going to lift him up, he's going to redeem him in the eyes of Israel, and he's going to place him at his table. And it's not that he's just inviting him over for Sunday dinner one time. No, he's saying, you have a permanent spot at my table from here on out to the end. This is what David is doing for the son of his enemy. Opening himself up to risk that that might bite him one day. He says, you shall eat at my table. Verse 9, then the king... Oh, one more thing here. The, when, when Mephibosheth says... Um, uh, a dead dog, this reference. Um, first thing is uh, to Jewish people, um, dead animals were unclean, and you stay away from them. Um, second thing, dogs were considered an unclean animal, you stay away from them. And so, like, there's this double, double picture of of something dirty and disgusting. And, and he's, this is what Mephibosheth is saying in all humility I am something low, dirty, downright, disgusting. He's ashamed of himself. And yet, you're inviting me to sit at your table. Um, verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. Ziba doesn't really have a choice. Um, Ziba's not a great guy. We'll see him le- again later in the story. He will try to ingratiate himself to David while at the same time uh, making Mephibosheth look bad. Uh, in this moment, Ziba's kind of lost power and control over this, the, this wealth-producing land. It's now under Mephibosheth's control. He's going to try to get it back later. He's not a great guy, right? Uh, verse uh, The second part of verse 11, this is the rest of the chapter, Uh, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Have you underline in your Bible, if you care to come back to anything in this passage, this is it. Right? Like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now, what we see here, first of all, is that, that David and his He's demonstrating this loving kindness. David, who has been blessed by God, is now blessing others. He's demonstrating this loving kindness. He's restoring, he's redeeming this man. He's raising him up, and he's seating him at his table. And more than that, he's sitting like a son. This is a picture of adoption. Mephibosheth is is now becoming like a son in the house of the king. Isn't that beautiful? But uh, he has a son. Mephibosheth has a son named Micah. Uh, we know from, uh, from, from Chronicles that uh, he has four sons and they have uh, sons. Like the line of Saul continues through Jonathan, through, through Mephibosheth, through Micah. Like David doesn't cut off his enemies. In fact, his, his enemies thrive. The whole family, a whole dynasty, a whole, whole people group that thrive because of the kindness that David shows, the loving kindness of God towards Mephibosheth. But then we're reminded at the very end he was lame in both his feet, it says. We're reminded of his disability. It, we're reminded essentially of the grace that God is pouring out to him through David. See, this is, in, in David going and confronting Goliath, Right, the heart of God on display is this boldness to stand in the gap between God's people and God's enemy and to fight for God's people. Boldness there. But, but here's a picture of tenderness. The heart of God, both bold and both tender, and we see this in Jesus Christ as the life that he comes to live. David wasn't wholly righteous, and perfect. There were parts of him that were, were, were kept from God, but, but Jesus lived this whole life perfect. And he takes that life, and in humility, he goes to the cross. And yes, in boldness, he conquers sin and death, but do you know what he else provides for us through this? He provides us a seat at the table, and, and when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. We're reminded, one, of the the body given for us, but the blood of the new covenant. We get to have a new relationship with God because of what he does. Not only are our sins forgiven, that's great, we need that. Not only can we rise from the dead, that's wonderful, we need that. But more than that, we get to spend eternity with our creator seated at his table. We get to be adopted sons and daughters of the most high God. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. Such is the loving kindness of God demonstrated toward us in Jesus Christ. And Davis gives He gives us a glimpse of that. Both boldness and both, both tenderness, but ultimately the point to Jesus. We look at this and we, we ask those four questions, right? Who is God? Well, what is God if not loving? This loving tenderness, this, this kindness and this grace. And what has he done? He's demonstrated that. He's poured that out. He's lavished it upon us through his son. And that changes our identity, and we become adopted sons, adopted daughters. How then do we live? Because of who he is and because of what he's done, we have a new identity. How then do we live? What are we supposed to do with that? Paul instructs Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Pause right there. This is what Paul is saying. Look at what God's done, right? Right? Look at the goodness and the loving kindness of, of who he is. And out of out of that, the, the Savior has appeared and he has saved us. Not our righteousness, his righteousness. And more than that, he has, he has cleansed us. And more than that, he's poured out his spirit on us and lavished it upon us. It's completely changed who and what we are. How then do you live? Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. I'm going to spend some time insisting on these things things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Look, religion says good works lead to salvation. Christianity says salvation produces good works. Good works that that we have been instructed and called to do by God. And and we don't do good works in order to be loved. And we don't do good works in order to, to earn a spot at that table. We do good works in a response to the love and the spot at the table we've already been given. Good works. James says, show me a faith without works and I'll show you a dead faith. Faith produces something. It leads to something in this this story, that the center of it, it's it's the table. We looked at the life of, of Jesus as we went through Luke, and how many times do we see Jesus sitting around a table with all sorts of people? It was the table which was the center place where he was able to show the steadfast love of God towards people over and over again. And let me ask you this. Should you and I be showing the steadfast love of God to people around our tables? You see, I think we would, we would all have this mental assent. We would look at this and we'd say, absolutely. We need to be a people who are loving and kind and, and generous. And, and we need to show people the, the same love that, that God showed us. And the question is, are we actually doing it? Are we actually doing it? And I think if many of us were to be honest, we'd... well, no. Churches have become really, really good at giving mental assent to stuff and nodding their heads. And at the same time, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Let's troubleshoot that. If we know we're we're supposed to be a people who are called to be loving, kind to others, extend that to others, what's the trouble? Why aren't we? I think there's there's three things that we could look at in troubleshooting. There's only two up on the slides. The third one came to me late last night and I didn't change the slides. So here's the first one, not on the slides. If we're not showing the kindness to Mephibosheth, maybe we don't know any Mephibosheths. The reality is maybe we are living such isolated lives between where we go to school or where we go to work or the communities that our kids are involved in or whatever it is. We may be living such isolated lives that we actually don't know anybody who needs to feel and experience the steadfast love of God through us because they're all Christians. So the, the solution is easy. We need to get out more. We need, to, we need to build relationships with people who need the steadfast love of God. We need to stop isolating. The second one, which is going to be called number one up there. We're too blank. We're too busy. Uh, we're too uh, um, perfectionistic. Uh, we're too comfortable. Uh, we're too broke. Uh, we're too maybe house poor. right? We think our houses are too small. We're too, whatever, we're too old, too tired, too stressed. Whatever it is, we're too whatever. And, and what it really comes down to, that's the problem. The issue underneath, though, is the, the reality that we're too controlling. That our hands are full, and we are trying to manage our time, and trying to manage our money, and trying to manage our space, and we are controlling every aspect of our lives. And all of this control prevents us from having opening hands to extending hospitality and the loving kindness of God to others. And a simple solution to that, let go of something. Let go of something. Like if you're looking at your time and, and you see that there's no time in your calendar, let me ask you this Are you spending time with people who will reciprocate your loving kindness? If so, consider pausing that for a moment and asking somebody else to come in and share that time. Who can't reciprocate? Who needs that loving kindness? When it comes to our spaces, So many of us are perfectionistic, and we say things like, well, I'll invite people over to my table when my house is clean, or when it's clean to my standard. You know, people who need your loving kindness don't care if you vacuumed. Or we say things like, my house is too small. I live in maybe like a little small apartment. There's not room. Yeah, come on. Right? Uh, The the average apartment today is bigger than most houses going back 2,000 years. Right? What if we, oh, oh, we're too broke. I don't have enough money. Well, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be hospitable to people when, you know, when I can provide a banquet. No. Serve them leftovers. Serve them frozen pizza. Serve them water. Who cares? That, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the loving uh, kindness of God they need to experience. Or we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. It makes me uncomfortable to invite people in. I, don't, I, I can't do it. You can God can give you that capacity. God can give you what you need to, to invite those, those people in. I know it's not it's uncomfortable, but you can. Some of you might say, well, I'm too old. I've done my bit. I'm too tired. Let the younger kids do it. Look, the reality is, is if you are still got breath in your lungs, you've still got work to do. Whatever that is, to what? To what? The, the underlying issue is You need to let go of something. Lastly, if you would say that you you don't extend the loving kindness of God, could that be because you've never experienced the loving kindness of God? You cannot extend grace if you've never received grace. And if you look at your life and you say, I I don't have the capacity or the room or whatever, but you're not extending the loving kindness of God, is it because you haven't felt the loving kindness of God? You haven't experienced what Mephibosheth experienced. And maybe that's because of two two things. Really, it comes down to one, but there's two sides to that coin, and that's pride. You haven't experienced the loving kindness of God, especially through Christ Jesus, because you don't think you deserve it. And you don't. But but you're of the opinion that what you've done, the crimes that you've committed against God, the sins that, that you've done, it's too much and I want you to see, that's pride because it's, it's built on this lie that you have out the loving kindness of God. And there's no way you can do that. You cannot outsin the grace of God. Accept it. Accept it. Embrace it. Belly up to the table. But you might be saying that, that I haven't received the, the loving kindness or the grace of God because you don't need it. You don't need it. You haven't done anything to make God mad. You're a good person. You haven't done anything to to stir up his wrath towards you. you. You deserve a seat at that table. You're entitled to a seat at that table. And again, that's pride. See, what Mephibosheth was able to do was he was able to accurately see who he was in light of the king. Take a good hard look at yourself and then compare yourself to Jesus and see if you don't need his grace. Accept it. Allow God to put it in your hands. Look, if you want to talk more about this, I'd love to make time for you. I would love to, to have coffee with you or have a meal with you, if that's where you're at. I'll close with this. We have an away game coming up. As Tristan said, the away game is, a, is four or five Sundays a year where we don't gather here. Instead, we go Attempting to express the loving kindness of God to people out there. Now, there's two reasons behind why we do the awakening. One is there is a lot of traditional church history that has to be undone. There's this lie that many people have been taught that goes back a really long time in the church, and that is that in the church there is the professional Christian and there's the normal Christian. There's the clergy and there's the laity, there's the, the people who take the field and the people who sit in the stands. There's the people who do the work of ministry, of evangelism and discipleship, and then there's the people who sit in pews and pay for it all. We've been taught this, this idea in the church that there are pros and there are laymen, when the reality is, is what New Testament teaches is that we are all called to proclaim the love of God. That leaders are called to equip people for the work of service. When we talk about good works in the New Testament from either Ephesians 8 or we're talking about from, from, from Titus 3, the good works is what? Demonstrating the loving kindness of God. Showing the world what the heart of God is like. All of us are called to do that. And, and so the away game, it, it's, it's about getting people to recognize their role, their place, their job in all this. Not to earn salvation, but because you've been saved. The second reason is we looked around at the church and we saw people who are so impoverished. We're not impoverished in terms of material finances. Finances are doing great. We're impoverished in terms of time. Every human being has 24 hours in the day, and yet we seem to fill it up. There is no margin left over. So how do we help people? How do we equip people to move towards this this work of of putting the love of God on display? We we need to to remind them that they're called to do that, but we also need to to help them. So here's here's four four Sundays a year. Four Sundays a year, you've already set this time aside to, to do the church thing. Well, just do the church thing out there. And you can do it. Look, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead isn't you. You have all the power you need. And you have experienced the gospel because you're saved. You have a testimony. So you have a story and you have power to go and proclaim to to the world that needs to hear the loving kindness of God. You have what you need to do this. But the reality is, is what we've seen is, is if there's not a church leader who programs something for you to do, you don't show up the initiative that it takes to simply reach out to some Mephibosheth in your life and invite them to around your table, it's not happening. The way games, are, they're meant to be training wheels. We, we, when we started this thing, we never intended that this would be something we would do forever. They're meant to be training wheels. They're, they're, they're meant to be opportunities for you get to, to get a taste of what it means to share the love of God with other people and to serve and be on mission in those ways. And, and once you've got a taste for it, to realize you can do it, that, that you want this to be a regular part of your, of your life and your rhythm. And you don't need the away game anymore. And you're not going to reduce it to four weeks out of the year or four Sundays out of the year. You want to do it all the time. It's meant to be training wheels. But the truth is, is training wheels don't work if you never get on the bike. What will you do with June 30th? What will you do with that time? Will you use it to sleep in? What will you do with that? Like, Guys, the reality is, is, you look at the New Testament, and it is impossible to actually read the New Testament and walk away thinking that the work of Jesus Christ for you was to give you a ticket into heaven, and now you get to sit on the sidelines and wait till the end. You can't read the New Testament that way because you read things like, abide in me, Jesus says, and produce fruit. You need to go from, from drinking milk to, to eating meat. There's maturity. You need to grow up into the image and stature of Jesus Christ. There's this, this is picture of, of movement, of, of walking in the Spirit. Where, wherever you look in the New Testament, the, the idea is that somebody who follows Jesus actually follows Jesus and moves and grows up. To tell a 10-year-old, pick up your room and feed the dog, that's one thing. To tell a 30-year-old to pick up the room and feed the dog. It's not the way it's supposed to be. For us, to to, to change, to be a people that God has called us to be, it requires us to sometimes just to take a step, to be willing to move we are willing to go. Look, when Paul says here, I want you to insist on these things. Look, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. At the end of this month, when, when you guys are going to be doing this away game, my family and I are going to be in Pittsburgh. After 20-some years, I'm reuniting with two army buddies and their families. We're all going to stay at an Airbnb together. I haven't seen these guys in 20 years and I'm not the same man that I was then. I was a Christian but because I held on to this this control in my life about the the image that I needed to have and the acceptance that I wanted, I never told some of the closest men in my life about the love and kindness of Jesus. I'm nervous about spending a whole weekend and our families coming together that they might reject me, that they might look down on what it is I do for a living, that, that they might well, just reject me. But I've gone through the last 20 years in the back of my mind and in my heart saying, if I love these guys so much, how can I never tell them? So th- this, is, this is not, I mean, this is my way game. Will you pray for me? Will you pray that I get boldness and also tenderness in proclaiming the gospel to them? through my words and actions and, and the time that I spend with them. I want to spend eternity sitting around that table with them. Will you pray for me? I'll be praying for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, You have blessed us to be Blessings. You have changed us in order to use us to help change others. You called us to be a part of your redemptive plan. You call us to participate and engage, to be salt, to be light. You called us to demonstrate love that the world looks at and points the finger at and says, these are God's people. To demonstrate love and kindness, God help us by the power of your spirit. You've given it to us. Help us to remember it. God, I pray for us as a church. Help us not to be satisfied with waiting. Help us to engage. Even knowing that it will cost us. It'll hurt. help us to do it anyway. In Jesus' name, amen.